Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Jesus said, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Let's key in on that word fulfill in just a minute. I truly tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's another significant phrase. Everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's an attention grabber. Unless you do this, you will not go to heaven. That's as black and white as you can get, isn't it? So we want to figure out what it is he has told us that could possibly keep us from getting to heaven because if that's the case, I don't want to be guilty of that. I don't want to be disqualified. There's some interesting truths we're going to extract from this simple passage here that I think will be some valuable information for you. First, I want to deal with the issue of what does fulfill mean? Jesus said, think not, I'm come to destroy the law. I come not to destroy, but to fulfill. And we have to understand what he's saying because What he continues to say hinges entirely on the concept of him fulfilling the law and the prophets. Because he goes on to say, almost in a threatening tone, that anybody who does not teach these commandments will be the least in the kingdom and teaches others to do the same. And those who teach these commandments will be the greatest in the kingdom. And then saying that you have to be more righteous than the most righteous Pharisee you know or you can't make it. Now, he's really set the bar high. You have to understand the context of the people he's talking to because they would have considered the Pharisees in their own little sick world. They would have considered the Pharisees the most righteous of all people. That's what the Pharisees wanted them to think. They presented themselves as being holier than thou. They wanted everybody to think they were the righteous cream of the crop. And many people bought into that, just accepted it, because that was the PR that was put out by the Pharisees in their behalf. We're more righteous than everybody else. And Jesus has the audacity to say, 
You have to be more righteous than they are, or you don't have a chance. You can almost sense their spirit flagging at that point. It all hinges on Jesus saying, I've come not to destroy it, but to fulfill it, the law. Now, let's do some terms, some terminology here. I will refer to the Torah. Many of you know what the Torah is, but that's just a fancy term for the law that was recorded in the Pentateuch, the, uh, the books, the five books written by, by uh, Moses. Some dispute that, but we generally accept this written by Moses. And you get into Exodus, Exodus Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and uh, you have the law contained in here. It's all called the Torah. So when I say that, don't get confused by this, this uh, uncommon term. We're talking about the law. He says, I have not come to destroy the Torah. I've come to fulfill it. And the reason I say we have to understand fulfill is because there are some denominations, some churches, that do not grasp this simple concept that Jesus brought a fulfillment to the Torah. And we'll get into more of what that means in just a minute. But disregarding that, they continue to try and live by the law, the Torah. Entire denominations sometimes devoted to trying to live by the Torah. I, the very first church that I pastored, I had a very eccentric lady in that church that had her own little brand of religion and theology and philosophy. And my dad had a, a, a catfish pond that in his closing in on his retirement years, he had developed that and raised some catfish and had hand-fed them. And one of his joy and delights was harvesting the catfish. He had gotten very proficient at filleting those things and putting on a big catfish fry for the company he worked for, if they'd have a picnic, for his church, for his family reunions. He just loved to do catfish fries. And the more he did it, the better he got at it. So he could fillet out 40 or 50 pounds of catfish pretty quick, had his recipe down for, for uh, putting these in the cornmeal and deep frying them, and had just, just perfected this whole thing. So he said to me, he said, I would like to come and do a catfish fry for your church sometime. We had a little park, caddy corner to our church. It was the, the center square in this tiny little one-horse town we lived in. In this park was a few slides and toys and things, but also barbecue pits and things. So the church just walks across the street, caddy corner to the park, and that's where we can picnic. I said, wonderful, Dad. We would enjoy doing that. So my little church went over and had this catfish fry, but the strange lady, she wouldn't eat any catfish because she was stuck on the Torah. The Bible says that they are unclean and she wouldn't eat them. Now this, you know, just being a young pastor in my first church, this was something that was a struggle for me to try and figure out how to deal with somebody that's still stuck in the Old Testament. 
That's the reason we have to understand what it means when Jesus said, I came not to destroy this, but I came to fulfill it. Now, one of the definitions of fulfill that people commonly use at this point is he came to bring it to an end. And that's not technically true. In a sense, we might think that's true, but it's not technically true. He didn't really come to bring it to an end. He came to bring it to its full realization of what it was intending to try to do. And then he began to take away the things from that that were burdensome, clumsy. And he said, let's just strip it down. Now, how many times in this series, the Sermon on the Mount, have I told you about the Jesus Creed? Because I'm trying to get that in your brain. That should become automatic for you to think about the Jesus Creed. What is it? You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the Jesus Creed. This was under the context of somebody coming to him and saying, what is the greatest commandment? And they were looking for him to go back and choose from any of the commandments, any of the laws, even some of them that the Jews had written and inserted into there. And they wanted him to choose one. And he swept them all aside and he said, here's the way it is, guys. The greatest commandment of all, love God with everything you've got. And he said, if there's any other commandment like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, hang all the Torah and the prophets. Everything is hung on that. So that's what I mean when I say that Jesus, when he fulfilled it, brought it to its completion, what it ultimately was trying to accomplish in our lives, and stripped away all the burdensome stuff that goes along with it. Because if you truly love God with all of your heart, and you truly love your neighbor as you love yourself, you are fulfilling everything the law intended for you to be and to accomplish. You are fulfilling it. Those are the simple guidelines. Just love God, love your neighbor, love yourself, and you've got it. Where we fail is not because we accidentally ate catfish, not because we accidentally did work on Saturday, Not because we wore clothing that consisted of blended fabrics. Not because there's a mark on the body. None of these things is where we failed. We failed because we did not love God with all of our heart. And that, as the guiding principle in our life, allowed us to step out of bounds in many different areas of our life. The second place we failed him is because we did not love our neighbor like we love ourselves. And so he simplified it, swept away all the garbage, said this is how it's going to be now from now on. Not, not, not the intricacies of the Torah, but we're not doing away with the essence of the Torah. What it was trying to accomplish in us and all of the ritualistic laws and things were trying to set us apart, trying to distinguish us, trying to make us a special called out people for God. All of these things the law is trying to do. Jesus said, I've come now to bring it to its focal point, to bring it to its completion. In me, all these things the law wanted to accomplish in you will be accomplished. This will happen. That's what he meant by fulfill. So the essence of the law, the moral implications of the law, those things never stopped. The law wanted the people to be moral people. In fact, when Jesus said, love the, Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, taken straight out of the Old Testament. It was there. But they had clouded it with all of the other 
rituals and laws that went along with it. So Jesus is going back and fetching that one particular part that is the essence of everything the law was about. And he said, in me, the law is fulfilled. This will be where it comes to its completion, its perfection. Therefore, whenever you serve Jesus, you are fulfilling the law. Not when you're choosing what kind of food you're going to eat. Not when you're being careful about Sabbath rules. And you look at the ministry of Jesus, and he was all the time stripping away all these cumbersome things and getting down to the essence of the law. Whenever his disciples were walking through the grain field and they were plucking grain and they were uh, threshing it you know, between their hands and getting the, the husks and the, and the stuff off of it and just eating the grain, they said, they're working on the Sabbath. And so Jesus uh, had to deal with this mentality that they were hung up on, on the intricacies of the law. And, of course, Jesus had an argument for that about David breaking into the holy place, eating the showbread. And uh, the, 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 the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made to serve the Sabbath. And the reason I think this is very important is because in this day and age, we have to have a clean, clear, unmistakable relationship with God with, without a bunch of messy doctrine and baggage that we carry along. So, friend, if you've been trying to serve Jesus with a touch of the law in your life, that you go back to the Old Testament and say, well, we can't do this because the Old Testament says I can't do this, you're walking with a burden. You're walking with an encumbered religion. You're taking on extra weight you don't need to take on. Because these things were fulfilled so that those things that, that were the, the minutiae that was trying to accomplish this holiness in you, you don't need that anymore because now Jesus fulfills it all in himself. Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so people think, well, wait a minute. If the law is not going to pass away, not the slightest stroke of a pen, not the smallest letter, not the jot, not the tittle, nothing of the law will pass away. They're missing the part about until the completion. Well, see, when Jesus came the first time, there was a completion of parts of the Torah. Whenever he came, and he now said it's not going to be considered a sin to do work on the Sabbath. You know why? Because he became a completion for that part of the law that at one time was considered so sacred and so holy. You cannot do work on the Sabbath. You, you, and Jesus said, you know, you can. he was accused of, of healing people on the Sabbath. He said, you hypocrites, you'll, you'll, you'll pull an ox out of the ditch if it's a Sabbath. But there were certain things in Christ's first coming that brought a completion to the law. It, Jesus didn't say, now that I've arrived, the entire law is meaningless and in, invalid. But he said, until everything is accomplished. S several things in the Old Testament were done away with when Jesus came the first time. Think about this. The most notable, the very first thing that ought to pop into your brain when Jesus came that we did away with was the sacrificial system. Now, it didn't end the day he was born. 
But when he died and made that complete sacrifice for all, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was no longer valid. Because why? Because there was completion. That's what it meant when he said, I came to fulfill it. I came to complete it. What it was trying to accomplish will be accomplished by me. So the sacrificial system was done away with, but not the fact that men are sinners and men need a sacrifice. Not a fact that we need redemption by blood. None of those things were done away with. Why? Because there's going to be a completion. Then there's this prohibition of eating the unclean foods. That was done away with. Because it became obvious there in the book of Acts, as we have uh, some stories there, that uh, Peter had this vision of the great sheet that was let down from heaven. And God was telling him in this vision, take of the animals and eat. And Peter, being a good Jew, says, well, I can't do that, God. He's telling God. What wisdom is there in arguing with God? God, I can't do that because you said it's unclean. And me being a good Jew, I can't eat unclean food. And God says, but I made the rules. I can break the rules. I can do anything I want. What I call clean, what I now determine to be clean... Let no man call unclean. Now, that's what I wanted to tell the strange lady in Breckenridge, Missouri. What God has cleansed, let no man call unclean. And I'm kind of glad for that because, you know, under the law, we couldn't eat shellfish, that's shrimp, we can't eat lobster, you can't eat clams, you can't eat catfish, all the good stuff. And especially pig products. We love the pig, the chops, the ham, and the bacon. And people who struggle with that, and there are large groups of people, of course the Jewish people, they can't, they can't, uh, they can't eat that. I just, I just read the story of a, a man who was sitting down with his Jewish friend for breakfast, and he was just chowing down on the eggs, and his Jewish friend said, does that have pork in it? And the man said, yes. And he said, well, how dare you? <laughs> what do you mean? He said, I can eat this if you don't want to. Of course, they were friends. They, they weren't getting into a, a fight. And if you don't want to, that's too bad for you. And they just both kind of laughed. But his point was that he could enjoy this because his response was, my God doesn't care if I eat pork. And the Jewish man says, my God does. <laughs> Now, how many of you, your God, doesn't want you to eat pork? How many of you, your God, doesn't want you to eat shrimp or catfish? My God wants me to eat that. The point is, if you don't have a good theology, if you don't have the right understanding of the Scripture, you can live in bondage. And what good is, is a, 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 relig a religion of bondage? So that's the reason Jesus said, I came to fulfill these things. The ancient custom of circumcision, which was a sign in the flesh, proving devotion to God, would be replaced with this spiritual circumcision of the heart, a cutting away of the carnal desires. Paul was very clear in that. It was no longer about that physical right. That was unimportant from that point on. Because he said, now it's become a spiritual matter of cutting away the carnality from the heart. 
and Passover gave way from the Old Testament that they don't have to do Passover anymore. You know why? Because you do the Lord's Supper. And all of these things were accomplished in the first coming of Christ. The rest of the law will be accomplished in his second coming. What is the rest of the law? Well, when Jesus comes, when he sets up his kingdom, when he rules with authority, and then whenever finally we go from the millennium into that eternal state with God as the, uh, the God of all, the tempter is, is, is done away with. There will be no more sin. There will be no more suffering. You won't have to have laws about thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not covet. You know why? Because the completion has come. So part of the law was completed on his first coming. The rest of the law will be completed after his second coming. It's about fulfilling and completion. And then Jesus gave this critical update. Those of you who are into computers understand what critical updates are. So Jesus gives this critical update to the law. The law was imperfect and incomplete because Christ had not yet come. But Christ is the perfection and the completion of all things. And it's the same with us, people. You are imperfect and you are incomplete without Christ. We do our best, but our best is clumsy and our best is inadequate. The law was imperfect without Christ, but Christ came and he perfected everything. And you are imperfect without Christ, except Christ comes to you and he makes you complete. So what the law tried to do through its regulations, Christ perfected through his fulfillment of the law. Now with Jesus at the center, the law makes sense. So if you're following Christ, if you're obeying him, you are, in essence, living out the Torah. You are living out the law without getting under all those rituals and regulations. You are living that out. So if you run into these people that are trying to live by the Old Testament... Now you have an understanding of where they're coming from and where they went wrong. Now you have an understanding of why you don't have to be bound by that. You don't have to let them put any guilt trip on you because you don't do what they do. Because Christ came not to destroy but to fulfill. The second truth that we get out of this, emerging out of this opening passage that I read, has to do with this whole concept of Jesus saying, unless you're more righteous than the Pharisees. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the one that's shocking. We we have to figure out what it is. I don't want to miss it. And he points to the Pharisees and tells his disciples, you have to be more righteous than these men. And the disciples were of the mindset like that culture was at that time. These are the most righteous we have to offer. They're more righteous than us. And Jesus implied their righteousness was not enough. Now, you've got to go back uh, a few sermons in my series to remember the definition of righteousness at this point. Let's not forget this. I've, I've tried to lay the groundwork for these sermons so we understand the terminology, we understand the concepts, but the righteousness that Paul preached was a gift. It comes only through Jesus Christ. Jesus did not preach that kind of righteousness. His righteousness was talking about obedience. And he didn't go any farther than that. That was what was useful and util for teaching his disciples. Righteousness equated to obedience. 
that was found in the Beatitudes. He's talking about it again. He hasn't finished talking about this kind of righteousness. So when he's talking about the righteousness of the Pharisees, he's accusing them of being people who are basically disobedient. They're not following God. And he said, you have to be better at obeying God than they are. Because if you are not any better than them, none of you are going to make it. They're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. Your righteousness, your obedience, your accountability to God must be better than their brand of righteousness. I've got to stop for just a minute and bring in this issue of dual morality, which is a sickness that has infected the American church, American Christianity. This dual morality. If you want to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, and you don't adhere to the Jesus creed, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're all falling short. It's all about obedience. Let's go quickly to the parable of the two sons. Jesus told the parable of the, uh, the farmer who gets his two sons up and says, I want, you, I want you to go work out in the vineyard, in the field. Go labor for me. And one son says, I will not do it. But he thought about it, and he went out. And the other son said, sure, Dad, I'll do it. And they sit down and played Nintendo. And Jesus said, which of these two sons did the will of his father, the one that said he would or the one that did? And they all agreed, well, it's the one who said he would not but actually did it. And Jesus said, now you're beginning to get it. It has to be more than just talk. It has to be a life of action and a life of obedience. That pleases God. Pharisees do all the talking. But your life has to be a life of action and obedience you actually carry through with what you're going to do. Even if you've argued with God and said, I'm not going to do it, if you end up doing it, you're the one that God is going to honor as having been obedient. Now, you cannot truly be obedient without being faithful to the Jesus Creed. One unique struggle of American Christians is they are facing the blending of two standards of morality. One standard of morality for the American Christian is the Bible. We all probably guessed that one. Can you guess the second standard of morality for the American Christian? The Constitution. And these two things collide sometimes. Some people have gotten to the point where they believe the Constitution is the Word of God. Some people get to the point where they believe the law of the land is the Word of God. And here's what happens with this dual morality that people are buying into. I've been watching some of the debates. They've had two debates so far. And I've heard politicians who are running for president say, I do not personally believe in abortion, but it is the law of the land. Okay, you heard that. Change issue. I do not personally believe in same-sex marriage, but 
it is the law of the land. Now, if you've heard that, you have heard dual morality in action. It's somebody that says, I know the Bible tells me to believe this, but my constitution demands that I believe this. And we're missing the point entirely. We're missing it entirely. If you love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength, when your relationship with God, your morality, your Christianity, comes in conflict with the laws of the world, if you love God with everything within you, God wins every time. You don't give this namby-pamby answer, well, I know what God wants, but I have to be a good citizen. Do you realize that Christianity was birthed in civil disobedience where the early Christians stood up against the laws that said you must worship the Caesar, you must worship the idols, you must enlist in the army, you must do these things, and they said we will not. Christianity has challenged the law and continues to challenge the law daily. You want to think about how do we smuggle Bibles into countries that have a law that says you cannot own a Bible in this land. It is against the law. And what does the church do? Said, well, we'll smuggle them in illegally. You know why they do that? Because the law of God trumps the laws of the land when the two are in conflict every single time. Now, this is, this is exemplified for us in the book of Acts. When the apostles were arrested for preaching and performing miracles, and they were arrested, and the Sanhedrin warned them and said, we tell you, we forbid you to preach this Jesus anymore. And the response was this. We cannot help but do what God wants us to do and, not, and obey him and not obey man. We cannot help. We have no choice. We have to obey God rather than man. And they set the precedent. I don't advocate that Christians be intentional lawbreakers. There's a lot of times when it's not conflicting with your morality. But there's times that have happened and more times are coming well, you're going to have to make a choice between whether you honor the Bible above the law or above the Constitution. And as a God-fearing Christian who loves God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, there is no way that you can remain silent in the face of some of these issues that are facing us today and say, oh, well, I don't care. You had better care deeply. And maybe you can't do anything about it to actually change it today, but you can still take your unswerving, unwavering stance. Let's, let's say with the issue of the same-sex marriage. Nobody is telling you you have to hate these people. Far from it. Nobody's telling you you have to deny them benefits. That's not what Christianity is about. But what we're talking about is whether you could be forced to participate in something that goes against what you consider to be sacred in your life. And we're being pushed on that matter. 
And when you get to the point where the government is insisting that you will be a material participant in something that is, 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 is uh, offensive to God, you have now to choose whether you think the law is more important or the Bible's more important. And I think it is highly important for us to get this clear in our brain today with the days that are coming ahead. Don't look for me to support any candidate that is up there trying to promote things that are unbiblical and ungodly. I will not lend any support to those people. It's, I can't. I can't. I cannot be a part of that. That's a dual morality. That's saying the Word of God is not that important. I will make concessions. I will make adjustments. I can't do that. You know why? I have to stand before God someday. I will not support any law that continues to fund and promote abortion. I will not support that. I will support every effort to eradicate and defund those things. I cannot support that. We cannot have a dual morality. Jesus said, your obedience to God has to be better than the lip service of the Pharisees or you'll not make it. You will not enter the kingdom. Let that get down in your spirit and challenge you where your morality and where your devotions lie. My final point. There are six examples, and this is just a preview for next week, is all it is. There are six examples that Jesus now gets into as we flow in the Sermon on the Mount. And he speaks about issues, hot topics. That's what we like. We like hot topics, don't we? He talks about murder, adultery, divorce, making oaths, retaliation. That's the eye for the eye, tooth for the tooth passage. And how to treat your enemies. These are the six subject matters that he launches into after he has just given them this very serious challenge. You must be more obedient, more sensitive to God than the Pharisees. You won't make it. And then he pulls up six examples of how you ought to do it. And every time he uses one of these examples, he says this. You've heard it said by them of old time. These six topics, if you want a fancy word for it, you may want to mark this on your notes or write it down. It's called the antitheses. Each one an antithesis. These six antitheses, they are popularly known as in the uh, uh, scholastic world. And he says, you've heard this, but I tell you something better. In other words, he took what the Old Testament said and said, here is how you are getting it wrong. I know you read it, but you're misunderstanding it. You're not getting to the essence of it. You're not grasping what the law was trying to teach you. Here's a couple of mistakes of how, a couple of examples of how these people got it wrong. First of all, why they got it wrong in these six antitheses, these six, you've heard it said by old time, and you've done it just like the old timers did it, but here's where you're wrong. 
First of all, they got it wrong because they tended to adhere to the letter of the law and failing to grasp the essence, the implication, and the spirit of the law. This is the trick of liberal-minded people that use that tired old argument, get ready for it, show me in the Bible. Fill in the blank, right? Okay, come on, people. How many of you heard somebody use that tired old argument? Show me in the Bible where I can't smoke marijuana. Right? You've heard it. They've got all these things. Show me. And what they're saying is, it had better be black and white just like I stated it, or you don't have a case. Show me in the Bible. Tired, silly argument. They expect you to find something in Scripture that spells out specifically black and white why abortion is wrong. No, no, I don't want no Scripture about murder. Show me where Jesus said, thou shalt not commit abortion. Show me that. You'll hear that on TV. You'll hear people arguing that. They argue that with you at your work. They think they are clever. I think they're fools. You may tell them so. Show me where the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. Show me where it says it. You know, here's the problem. These people are not really looking to the Bible for guidance. They're looking for loopholes. They're looking for excuses for their lifestyle. They pretend that if it's in the Bible, they would submit to its authority, so they put this ridiculous demand, show me where it says, well, if I did, would it matter to you? The answer is no. Because they would argue the point and say, well, that, it doesn't really mean what it says. It means something else. They're the kind of people that always have an argument no matter what you show them in the Bible. You see, the, the problem is this. If you don't truly love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're not really interested in anything God has to say because you're not living the kind of life that loves God. You're living a life that pleases you. And as long as you continue to do what you want to do, your argument will always be, show me in the Bible, or I can't do this. They adhere to the letter of the law. And the problem with adhering to the letter of the law instead of the essence of the law is you do not allow the Spirit to speak to you. You do not allow the Spirit of the Word to speak to you. There are principles in the Word that we glean from reading the Word that become a way realizing that whenever you love God with all of your heart and you love your neighbor as yourself, there's a lot of things that don't have to be written in black and white for you to know that it's wrong to do this and right to do that because it comes under the heading of loving God first. Loving your neighbor second like you love yourself. And so if you're looking for that, it must be in this order, with these many words, you don't even understand how to let the Bible to speak to your life. You don't let the Spirit speak to your life. Aren't you glad we don't have an exhaustive list of shalls and shall nots? Wouldn't it amount to how many thousands to have to live by? 
in order for us to figure out what kinds of things we should shun because it does not please God and because they're detrimental to our Christian walk. I've seen a lot of Christians make an argument for why they do the things they do. They should not be doing it, and, and they are just as guilty. Show me in the Bible, or I cannot. You know what? Sometimes it's just a matter of being wise. Sometimes it's a matter of just not being foolish or stupid. Sometimes it's not even spiritual. It's just don't be stupid. And sometimes it's just a matter of understanding enough about what God expects of us when we love him with all of our heart, mind, and soul and strength to say, maybe it doesn't say in black and white in the Bible, but I know as the Spirit moves on my heart and touches my conscience, I can't do that. It doesn't please God. The, the, the second problem they had and the mistake they made when Jesus said, you've heard it said by them of old time, is they built their religion on hearsay. Here's what Jesus said in, in the uh, NIV translation. You've heard that it has been said. You've heard people talking about this. You've heard people teaching this. You've heard them preach this. You've heard the teachers of the law say this. You've heard it and you bought into it. Anything they said. The problem is living a religion based on hearsay is sloppy and misleading and dangerous. And do you know how easy hearsay can get down into your life? You know how many Christians I've run into that they've tried to quote and say, well, the Bible says, and they quote some ridiculous thing the Bible never did say. You know why they quoted it? Because it's hearsay. Because they heard somebody testify that in church one time. The Bible says he will temper the wind for the shorn sheep. It does not say that. That might have been Ben Franklin or something. I don't know. The Bible says a penny saved is a penny earned. That was Ben Franklin. It's all hearsay. And that's one of the problems they had that Jesus was addressing. You people, you've heard it all your life, and you're believing in it, and you're practicing it, and he's here to say it, and I'm here to tell you it didn't happen that way. First of all, you've misinterpreted it in some cases. Secondly, as you get into these antitheses, you go down to the sixth antithesis, and Jesus actually includes in there that it says, you've heard it said by them of old time, love your neighbor Hate your enemy. Now, how many of you have read that passage and ran and got your concordance and said, what does it say? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. No, none of you. You just took it for granted that the Bible says, the Bible didn't say that. They threw that in. And Jesus said, you're basing it on hearsay. The Bible never once said hate your enemies. See how distorted and convoluted their religion had become because it was based on well, that's what mom taught me. It's what dad taught me. It's what my Sunday school teacher taught me. It's what the preacher preached every other Sunday. But what does the Bible say? And so when Jesus is getting ready to go into this, the antitheses, he's accusing them of being too literal and strict. It has to say it thus and so, or it's not true, or basing it on tradition and hearsay. Two mistakes they made. Let me summarize my sermon today. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. You do not have to live under the Torah. You're not bound by it. 
The Torah will not pass away until it reaches its completion, but many parts have. They're done. Jesus became the complete completion and fulfillment. And when he comes again, he'll complete the rest of it. The Pharisees, considered by most people to be the most righteous people on earth, were miserable failures in their attempts at righteousness as it means obedience. Because they live by the letter of the law and they look for loopholes. If you live your entire life trying to find excuses for your behavior, you have a Pharisee righteousness. And Jesus, Jesus said that kind of righteousness would fail you. It would not get you into the kingdom. He said to his disciples, and he's saying to you and me, your righteousness, your obedience had better be better than that of the Pharisees. And that's what the Spirit is speaking to us today. His people, we're not talking about talking a good talk. We're talking about walking the walk. Living the life of obedience. Making God number one in your life instead of number two or number three or number ten. Listening to the Spirit that you know when you're confronted with things that are not specifically spelled out in the Bible, you say, but I know what the Spirit is speaking to me. And I know what the essence of God's Word, it's about holiness and purity and righteousness and loving God and loving others. And the rest of chapter 5 when we get into the six antitheses, will be Jesus teaching us with these prime examples how to understand Scripture. And you're going to be excited to get into this because the Word, Jesus, the Word of God, Jesus, the true author of the Word, is going to be the guest teacher. And He's going to teach us, when you read this, this is how you are to understand it. You don't want to miss that. The Master, teacher of the Word, is going to teach us how to read and apply the Word. He's going to teach us how to have a surpassing righteousness. He's going to teach us how to work these things out in our lives with these six examples. Would you bow your heads?